0: From the trailer park, once from the farm, rings on their fingers, no babies on their arms, taking life with a grain of salt and lime, living, loving, laughing, we're having a good time, nothing too deep won't tell you how to vote, 2 send stand-up comics with stories from the road, we're cutting up really. Loving, loving. we're having a good time. All right, welcome. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the We're Having a Good Time podcast. My name's Dusty Slay. It's early in the morning. I woke up. It's 7.30 a.m. I'm up. I'm recording a podcast. It feels good. Uh, I got out of the bed, I have an electric blanket, and it's cold in my house, and I got out of it. I got out of it today. I came up to a cold room, and I'm sitting here, and I'm pumped to be here. I couldn't be more pumped. I tried to record this yesterday, I was doing it by myself, I got confused, I was like, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore, so I just, I just shut it down, and then I said, we'll come back to it, we'll try it again tomorrow, and uh, here I am, trying it again today, and I feel good about it, again, couldn't feel better about it, uh, what an exciting time, things have been great, I'm, I've been at home for three days, uh, feels very good, I don't always get three day stretches at home. Uh, as I said, l- when I left off last week, I was in Chattanooga. I'd been to Sunnyvale, California. Then I went to L.A., and then I flew home for one night and then drove down to Chattanooga. Uh, and I was in um, Chattanooga Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night, after my show Sunday, drove home. What a great time, though. I think that I recorded the podcast on Thursday of last week, Um and I had done one show on that Wednesday, and that Wednesday show was okay, but the rest of the weekend was amazing. My best weekend yet in Chattanooga, and and my best weekend for several reasons. I mean, one reason being that uh, people are starting to come to my shows. I mean, for a long time, uh, I wasn't sure who was coming. You know, I was like... uh I mean, there were some people coming, but, uh, um, but you know, uh, I don't know who they were, right? They were just, you know, random people that were like, we like comedy. We'll go see this guy. What's his name? You know, uh, Steve Martin has a joke off his album, Let's Get Small, where, where he's like, uh, oh, it's still $5 to get in, right? $5, people come to the door and they go, oh, $5? Yeah. What happens, right? I rest. I messed up that joke, uh, but I'll blame all things not funny on the fact that it's 730 and that I'm sitting in my house alone, talking into a microphone, uh, not looking at anyone else. This should be easy. I like to talk, but what I want to get, I, I'm, I'm so close to getting the video podcast thing set up, but I can't do it. I mean, the things I bought do not work together. I got a Mevo camera and a Rodecaster Pro. I bought every cord you could think of. The Mevo camera has the ability to go live, so I can do live podcast while recording from the Rodecaster. But but I just can't make them work together, so I can't get the good audio that I want along with the good video that I want. I'm going to figure something out. It will happen one day, Um, but who knows? I mean, you know, there's been, you know, potentially my podcast is going to get, you know, taken up to the next level. Uh, I've had some conversations with some people, uh, and that will be great. But I, uh, on my own, I mean, I bought all these things. I bought lights. I bought lights and I can't get any of the lights to work the way that I want. I mean, you know, I, I click the button, they come on, it's bright, but I'm like, I don't understand. Do I need it this bright? I recorded a uh, on John Reap's podcast and I had my whole setup going and I thought, well, this will be great. I'll be able to, you know, record into uh, my phone and I'll do it live and I was using a different app and I, you know, kind of skyped in, but I used an app called zoom and then my podcasting equipment wouldn't work with that app. So I don't know. It's tireless. I end up writing bad emails to people, uh, yelling at them at email. They don't know I'm yelling cause I don't type in all caps, but I'm, I'm yelling at them and I've, I've threatened to send things back and people, they don't care. They go, yeah, all right, great. Here's the shipping information. We'll take it back. And then I'm like all mad because I'm like, I even told a guy, I was like, wow. I was like, I really just wanted you to tell me how to make this thing work. I don't really want to send it back. I want it to work well. And uh, and he told me that the RODECaster Pro is not designed to work with Amiibo. And I like the RODECaster Pro. That's what I'm recording on right now. That's what it gives me these buttons to to do things like this that d- that was is a little less dr- dramatic than i wanted it to be i had it the volume turned down low i don't have enough things programmed uh i got you know i do a lot of things i got a lot of things that i'm doing so sometimes i'm i'm losing some quality on some things my art teacher who i wanted to talk about anyway mr conway was his name uh he was my art teacher and i took art In ninth grade with a different art teacher, Mr. Brantley. But then in 10th grade, I got switched over to Mr. Conway's class. So I did Mr. Conway's class in 10th grade, 11th grade, and then I did it twice my senior year. And Mr. Conway was really great. He had two expressions that I still remember. One was quality over quantity. He told us, he said, you know, once we got out of art one and out of art two, once we were on up into the next levels, he says, I want you to make quality artwork, quality over quantity. He said, I don't care if you work on one piece the entire year, as long as that piece represents, uh, you know, the quality that it should for spending that much time on it. And it really was great and i i feel like that that should be applied to comedy because we have so much comedy out there but just not that much quality comedy and then there's this thing i mean there's a you know i know that it's the money making machine out there that wants people like bill burr and jim gaffigan and and i don't know just name the popular person they want them to put out a new special every year, one special a year, you got to put out a new thing. And it's like, to me, it's like, I, I, I find that, um, when someone has time to marinate on a joke and they have time to really dig in there, then that the, the comedy that comes out of that is so much better. I mean, you know, someone like Bill Burr is so funny that he can record a podcast every Monday, um, say GFY a bunch of times, and be hilarious. I mean, the guy is hilarious. There's no denying it. But I, I can't imagine, like, Jim, Bill Burr puts out an album uh, special every year. What if he put out a special every two years and worked on that special for an extra year? Like, how great would it be? I don't know. I mean, th- you know, there's no way to know. But I I like the methodology, that that Jeff Mr. Conway has, that is quality over quantity. And then another quote that he used to say to us was, you're only limited by your imagination. And I think even understanding what that quote means, you have to apply the quote to be able to understand what it means. You're only limited by your imagination, right? So when you're thinking about jokes, you're writing... You're writing your joke and you write down the truth. You know, you, you you're like, All right, this funny thing happened to me, so you write that down. And then if the truth is not funny enough, then you have to add in some stuff, right? So you gotta dig into your imagination and find what makes that funny. I mean, we're we're artists here. You know, we have to create art, and I just read an article. I wanted this article to be different, but the article was about, basically, I always say cussing, right? I know people say swear words. Some people say cursing. I don't know if it's the country background, my upbringing, but I always say cussing. So basically, her article was, why does art have to have so much cussing in it, and uh it was the f f word and the s word right the f and the s and that's what she said that's in everything and she used it over and over again i mean part of uh what the article was was because i was going to read the article someone i was talking to a comic a comic i met named tyler out in sunnyvale california and he we talked a little bit about comedy And he was hosting, and, and, you know, I, I always request a clean host, clean feature, and that message never really seems to make it to the actual comics who will be performing with me. I don't know where that disconnect happens, but it never actually seems to make it to the comics themselves. So I was talking with him about being clean, and he was like, he was just, you know, he was fairly new, I think, and he was just like, I just don't have that clean of material. And I was saying, well, I, I said, you know, I said, I think there's some jokes that you have where all you have to do is just replace, you know, an F-bomb with some other kind of word. And I said, if you spend some time thinking about what that word is, then, you know, that word might actually be funny. Like the joke that I have off the Making That Fudge album where I say uh, um, uh, a king-sized dookie. Right? Dookie's still gross. And I stopped telling that joke because it's too gross to me. But Dookie is a cleaner word than shit. Right? So I could say, uh, you know, I'd eat a king size piece of shit. Right? I could say that. But to me it's not as funny as dookie and it's harsher. I want you know, I want to present you with the joke without slamming it down your throat, you know. So um, but, but, you know, there could be an argument made for, you know, piece of shit being funnier than dookie. And I've, you know, I've called people POSs several times in my life. I was a drinker, but I've done it. Uh, I used to have a, a thing that I would say to people when I was mad at them, when I was drunk and POS would be part of it. Um, I feel like that, you know, once you've, once you really laid that down, you let people know how you feel about them. But I'm not doing that on, on with comedy. I'm, I'm just trying to tell jokes. So, And again, this is just my philosophy. This doesn't have to be anybody else's philosophy. If you want to say POS all the time, that's up to you. You do whatever you want to do. And I hope that you have great success with it. But we were talking. And so... He really thought about that. He took, took that to heart, what I was saying, and he was reading this article, and he sent it to me, and I was like – I was so excited to read it, and I was going to read it on the thing, but it's like a million F-bombs in it. But basically they're just saying that art now, uh, when it comes to a movie, when it comes to comedy, when it comes to anything, it's just like over-the-top cussing all the time. That's what it is. I mean Mr. Conway also used to say – uh, and I don't know why I've been thinking about Mr. Conway so much, but he had a real impact on my life, as I think he had on many people at our school. Um, because I don't, you know, I don't, I don't ever diss my hometown. I really like my hometown. I think it's great. I, I There's so many people there that I love and that I think are great. Uh, but it's not the most creative of places. It's not this, you know, uh, just mecca of creativity. But... Mr. Conway was a really bright light in that. He really brought a lot of creativity to to people. I mean, I, I took those same classes with, uh, you know, three friends that I'm, I'm still friends with to this day. I don't see them as much as I'd like, but I still see them. My my friend Shane Newsome, uh, who I see, uh, I see him the most. And then um, Jennifer and Aaron Bass, they ended up getting married to each other. And uh, uh, Aaron is a chef. Um Jennifer is a uh, hairstylist. I think they both own a restaurant and hair salon. And uh, so they've taken that creativity and applied it to something else. Shane, I'm not sure what Shane does for a living. But Shane makes bonsai trees. He uh, kayaks. I mean, Shane was a really great artist. They all were. I mean, arguably, they were all better than me at creating art, but I've always been very creative and I've started to get a little weirder on stage and I'm really enjoying that. and bringing out the creative side, but I just think that comedy, he, he would say that people that cuss a lot, it shows that they have a limited vocabulary. And I think that's true. And because, you know, in the past when I, I don't have the some great vast vocabulary, but when I was at the height of my cussing, I didn't have a great vocabulary, but then there's these articles that have come out on Facebook that have said people that cuss more – studies have shown that people that cuss more are more intelligent. So everybody shares those, and they go, see, I told you. I told you all these F-bombs I've been dropping was a sign of intelligence. But I I looked at one of those studies, and I scrolled on down to the bottom, and I tried to find the sources for this study, and basically at the end, they were like, yeah, we really don't have any good sources. I mean, this is kind of a vague thing that we did, so don't buy into the hype of cussing makes you smarter. And then, you know, there is that, I mean, you know, and it's not to say that if someone cusses a lot, they're not intelligent, but... You know, there was an expression, cuss like a sailor, back in the day, and that was because, you know, these people, I don't know, they were, they joined the military and they were off stuck on a boat with a bunch of dudes cussing at each other and, uh, you know, no one cared. And so, those three quotes, I think, could be applied to comedy today. We have uh, uh, quality over quantity. Oh, man. I mean, I'm going to try to get into this in a way. I got a couple of emails to answer as well. Um and then I'll do where we've been, where we're going. I don't, I don't know if people care about that segment as much as I do, but it's got to happen. But quality over quantity. I mean, let's just think about this, right? You go to an open mic and you got, you got three things that happen. You got the person that comes up and they do the exact same jokes every single time. And then you got the person that comes out and does brand new jokes every single time. And then you have people that you can see working on things, right? I mean, obviously, there's other types. These are the three we're going to focus on. So there's the guy that comes out and does guy or girl. I just refer to everybody as a guy. And um, so you got the guy that comes out and he does the exact same jokes every time. He doesn't change them. He doesn't work on them. It doesn't, he, he had, he did them his first time on stage. He got a mediocre response and he was like, that's what I'm going to do. This person, I think more than anything is just craving some attention, some companionship and that's fine. But if you're that person, think about writing some new jokes, because if you're looking for that companionship and that friendship that the comedy community can provide, because it can, it's such a great place for that. I mean, I've seen people that have come out to open mics for months at a time, and they were never funny the first time they came. They never got funny. But the comedy community embraced them because they kept showing up. They kept showing up even after repeated failures. They just kept showing up, and, and they became part of the club. So imagine that's you. Imagine you're the comic that fails every time, but yet you're still being embraced by the community. What's it going to hurt you to try a new joke? And this is why I say the, the my key to writing new jokes is to carry a physical notepad and write down everything that happens throughout the day that I think is funny. Now, some days I won't write anything at all, but I'll write things down. And then when I'm when I'm going up to do an open mic or going to do a show where I feel like I can try some new things, I, I I flip through that notebook and I see the ideas and I go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. And then I'll go up and I'll tell that on stage. And that may or may not become a good joke or not. But I'm at least, especially if you're doing open mics every week, I mean, that is your safe space to try things. You know, you just have to get into the attitude and the mindset that you're going to have a lot of failures when it comes to jokes, but you have to be able to see what's working and what's not working so that you can work and change it. And that's why I say it's great to have a friend that you can talk to about it. You know, and it's like, I I know so many comics that love to talk to new comics about jokes. I mean, two comics in particular, Brian Bates, uh, Chris Buck, who I just worked with, they love talking comedy. I mean, me and Chris Buck, we worked together in Chattanooga this weekend. I mean, we talk so many jokes, and it was great. I mean, my jokes improved throughout the weekend just talking with Chris about the jokes. So, but this is what, if you're a brand new comic, uh, to me, this is the most frustrating thing. Is that if you're the comic who does the same jokes every week, uh, no matter what, and then I say to you, hey, you know, would you like to write, or you say to me, would you like to write, and we get together And we take those premises that you have, and we write them, and we change them, and then you go up and you tell those, and you get better laughs. But then the next time I see you, you're back to telling those jokes the same old unfunny way. Then it's like, all right, I'm done, right? Because yeah, I can't help you if you can't recognize when the new way is funnier than the old way. Now, some people will say, well, I like, I like that joke and I like the reaction that I get. And if you're, the reaction that you get off the joke, the new way is a worse reaction. If the new way is a better reaction than the old way, but you like the reaction of the old way, meaning you like the worst reaction, you like the reaction with the least amount of laughter, then that's not good. You're not going to – chances are you're not going to be successful at writing jokes if, if you prefer a reaction with less laughs than a reaction with bigger laughs. Now, granted, if that new laugh is off some hacky, cheesy premise, right? Like I hate a Walmart joke, right? I had a Walmart joke in my act in 2015, and I hated it. But it got a laugh every time. I told it for a while because it kept getting laughs. And I hated it. Um, but it was all part of the process, right? So we're you're all learning. You're telling jokes. You're, you're writing jokes. Sometimes you're going to have a joke in there for a while that you hate. I got a credit score joke that I told for a while. I hated it. But I told it because I liked the callback that it provided for me. So you're that guy. So, think about changing up a joke. Think about adding in a new joke. All right. And then you're the comic that comes out every time and you do a new joke every time. Now, the reason that I say this is because if, if we're applying the quality over quantity thing, you may think I'm the guy that tr- does the same jokes every, every week. So, I'm, I'm working on quality, not quantity. And I don't think so. I think you're just, you're just phoning it in. You've got your jokes. You're like, these are my things. I'm going to do these at the open mic. So you're not actually working on a project. You're you're just coming in and reciting the same things. That would be like, it would be the equivalent of you painting a picture and every day coming into class showing the class the picture that you painted. You're not adding anything to the painting. You're not uh, working on the shading. You're not... Uh, you're not halfway through with the painting. You, you've painted it. You're like, no, this painting's done. I I finished it the first day of class, but I'm gonna call it qu- quality, and I'm just gonna show it to the class every day. I'm never gonna. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna work on it. All right. So that's why it's not a quality over quantity type thing. And then you got the guy that comes out every day, tries a new thing every. Every week he's out there with a brand new joke. Lots of brand new jokes. And and unless those jokes are smash hit, then um, you got to slow it down. I mean, if you come out every week, you got smash hit jokes. There was a guy uh, for a while that I would see. He moved. But I mean, uh, Josh Wagner was a guy here in the local scene. Every time I saw Josh, he had a brand new jokes and it was hilarious. I was like, wow, that's amazing. It's upsetting, but amazing. And, um, you know, so and un, 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 unless you're that, uh, you're going to have to slow it down a bit, you know. And it's like, I know that if you're in a small scene and you're seeing the same comics every week, that you're like, ah, I don't want to do the same old jokes. Because also, people hearing the same jokes are going to give you, you know, a. a, a the lesser reaction than the joke deserves because they've already heard, it, especially if it's a misdirection or something like that. So that's so then there's then there's this is the next one. There is there is the the art of working on the joke, coming out with a joke, getting a mediocre response, saying, "Okay, what can I do now? What can I do now to make this joke?" Work the way that I want it to work. What do I need to do to it? And that is the quality thing. I hope that makes sense. I mean, because I I got myself tangled a bit in a web there, but I just think that there, you must be working. I mean, because Mr. Conway's philosophy with painting is like, yes, if you're going to work on a painting all year, then I got to see you working on it. I got to see the. The work going into it. Otherwise, I'm going to need you to produce a few things, you know, and I always did well in that class, but I'll be totally honest. Sometimes in art class, the ideas that I ended up creating were not totally my own. I am, I am, a, I, I think I'm very good at observing and listening and taking things in. And if someone and if I have a grain of an idea and someone gives me a suggestion, oh man, I can run with a suggestion. I mean I can because you know it's like I just think sometimes you know like what are we trying to do? what's what's the point of what we're trying to do? Because if we're just you know I'm just trying to create good things. So I'm not overly concerned if it was a hundred percent. You know, I, I I don't mean I'm taking things, but I mean if someone throws a suggestion my way and I in, enjoy that suggestion, I'll run with that. I mean, Mr. Conway gave me several suggestions, and I just ran with them. And I'm not sure that he know knew that or didn't know it, but I'm like, I just want things to be the best, right? If I'm painting a picture, I want that painting to be awesome. It's never going to be the best, right? I'm never going to be a better painter than uh, than Leonardo da Vinci if he was a painter. I'm not exactly sure what he did. Um, but, you know, I'm never going to be better than that. I'm never going to paint better than Picasso, right? So, sorry, bless me. And uh, I'm never going to paint better than... Uh, Picasso, but I can paint good enough to make somebody want to buy it. So that's what I'm saying. When you get you, you you compare yourself, people comics compare themselves to people. They'll they'll go, I remember in like 2015, Bill Burr put out a special and that people were putting on Facebook, Bill Burr's fe- special is so good, I want to quit comedy. And it's like, why? That doesn't make sense to me. It's you know, it's like there always is going to be the greats. That's like saying, Oh Uh, Bill Kazmaier used to be the strongest guy in the world uh, when I was growing up. At least that's what they said. And He was from Auburn, right now where I'm from. One day, Bill Kazmaier came into Office Depot and bought a desk where I worked, and I had to go load the desk up for Bill Kazmaier, and it was a two-man lift, and he watched me load that into the back of his truck, the world's strongest man. I thought, man, that'd be cool if we could lift something together. But he didn't want to get in on it. But You know that would be like me looking at Bill Kazmaier, going, "Oh, I don't even want to work out. That guy's too strong." Right? It's like you don't have to be the best; you just have to be good. You have to figure out what's best for you. You don't have to get the most followers. I mean, you know, my followers on social media are slowly creeping up, and I am okay with it because I think those are real followers. Right? They're real people that enjoy what I am doing. It's not phony. Um, I don't know. It's just, you know, I I feel like sometimes I look at people's followers and I'm like, geez, like I've never even heard of you. How did you get that many? Uh, and, And that's fine. So I just think, you know, I say all that just to say, you know, you can't get wrapped up in that stuff. You can't let people discourage you. You just have to create what you know how to create and be the best at that. Be the best at creating the type of comedy that you create. And if you're talking about yourself and not trying to take on the world's social problems and social platitudes and be like, I'm going to be the best at dissecting this. It's like, no, just just be the best at sharing your story. I love that. I feel like this has been a hot podcast. I should do all podcasts in the morning. I feel like I'm on it today. My voice... I feel like it feels good in the morning, too. It's uh, like a bit sleepy, so it feels like I'm a real professional radio host. So now I got some emails to read. So before that, let's do a little where we've been, where we're going. Where they going? Where they been? Where they going? Where, Where they been? Where we're going, where we've been. Okay, where we been, where we going? Okay, last week I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee at the Comedy Catch. And as I think I said earlier, my best weekend uh, by far ever being there. I mean, I I skipped all of 2019. I didn't go. And then I went back for 2020 and wow, I mean, the turnouts were amazing. I mean, Wednesday we had an all asphalt dude show. I mean, the whole audience was just people that uh, were training to sell asphalt and then, and then it, you know, and that was a great show. Honestly, I mean, it was as good as it's going to be for a bunch of dudes. And then Thursday, Friday, two shows. Friday, two shows. Saturday, one show. Sunday, fantastic. I mean, big crowds. I don't think I sold out any per se, but they were very full, and and almost all of them. And I did seven shows, and it's like I thought, man, if I were doing four, I'd probably sell them all out. But instead, I'm doing six, and, and that's fine. I mean, I I love that. I mean, whenever I get that that many shows in a weekend, I really get to work out, and I feel like I come out a much better comic. One show on, it's had some people from Lafette, Alabama, come up where 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 I'm, you know, sort of from. I mean, I'm from a different couple of different places because of my divorced family. Uh, I was born in Opelika, and then I moved to Pennon, Alabama, which is right outside of Lafette, Alabama. Uh, which is spelled Lafayette, and um, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it the right way. You know, I always say that's how people in the town pronounce it, but I think that may be my own, they may say Lafayette, but I say Lafayette, and so I was born in Opelika, in the hospital in Opelika, and then I moved to Lafayette, to Pennon, And my parents got divorced around two or three. I always said – I said two on two different albums, and then my dad said, you always say two. You got divorced when you were three. So I'm like, well, you could have told me that after the first album. But – so then at two or three, I moved back to Opelika with my mom. So – and then I went back and forth. So I'm kind of from both places. And um, they came up from Lafette to see my show. I don't know if they came up just to see my show, but it was very nice and uh i was like don't be telling my dad about some of these jokes now don't be sneaking in on me don't be a spy out here and then uh after that friday early show great show had some my sister's neighbors came over uh which it's always great to see them uh sean is his name i called him justin and he knows my sister and my nephew and i said uh, I said, oh, yeah, great to see you, and I was like, "Just." I was very confident in his name. I said, Justin, and he was like, no, that's your nephew's name, and I was like, oh, okay, that is right, and, uh, but it was great to see him, his wife, and then, um, Late Show Friday took the, Late Show Friday was wild. Chattanooga can be a wild club. They had a fight in that club one time at the Comedy Catch, uh, over college football, and, um. They don't want you to talk about it on that stage. So I took the stage, and there was a there was a group upstairs in the balcony, and they were rowdy. I was like, I know, I don't even know why they're here. I, they clearly did not watch a video on my comedy, and they were rowdy. And then as I take the stage, somebody is singing up there. So I I, I you know I let the staff know that someone's singing upstairs, and Danielle Danielle uh, co owner of the club Danielle Alfano goes up, takes care of the situation. I don't really hear anything out of them the rest of the time. But the Alfano family that runs the club has been very nice to me. They've really um, really been a big supporter of mine, and I appreciate them. Michael Alfano, who runs the club, been very supportive. I don't think he really got my comedy the first two times that I featured. Um, and on the third time, I was featuring for Matt Mitchell, the Casio Kid... Uh, out of Huntsville, Alabama, who I've done his podcast, uh, Cassio's Cut. You can find that on my website or on my um, Instagram bio. I thought that was a really good podcast. I really enjoyed that. When I thought, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know his reach per se, but I think he's a good host. He's been on radio for years, and I thought we had a really great podcast. But he said that as I was on stage, Michael Alfano came up to. Matt Mitchell, Matt Mitchell told me this, that Michael Alfano said, all right, I get it now. And the next time he brought me back to headline, I had not really done anything. Maybe I had done Jimmy Kimmel and he brought me back to headline. And then the next time I had done the tonight show, he brought me back to headline. And then, then we had some schedule mishaps, but back in 2020, big time shows, some of the staff said, you know, we don't, especially the Sunday show we were like, we don't really get this big of a crowd on Sunday, so very nice. I appreciate all the support. And also on Sunday, a lot of the uh, local comics came out, which I always appreciate. That always means a lot to me uh, when local comics come because I'm not trying to be like, yeah, I got all the support, but it's nice to be like, wow, uh, the comics here uh, care about my comedy and want to come see me because... You know, I'm doing what I imagine they hope to be doing later and I've done it in a pretty organic way. I didn't get famous off a of viral video or or get picked up by a TV show. I'm just out here doing comedy and I'm being appreciated for my comedy and that's very nice. And uh I thought that it was great. I mean my my family came. My sister lives in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is just outside of Chattanooga. So we went to eat lunch with them on Saturday. And went to my sister's house for a bit. But we went to eat at a restaurant called Jenkins. Um, which is um, a pretty country restaurant. But pretty popular. Very, It was hopping. And my waitress knew my name. She knew who I was. She was like, I've seen your show a couple of times. She said, we're having a good time. And we high-fived. And then my family loved it. And uh, my nephew ordered chicken finger platter and she told him it would be five chicken fingers and then you know what he did he got six and i think that's because i was there i think i got the chicken finger hookup. i think people are like "Ooh, that guy likes chicken fingers we know that he does because he talks about liking chicken fingers let's give him an extra one and it was great i had a hamburger steak and uh Hannah had a fish and chips. I don't think she liked that fish and chips. It didn't look that good, but the hamburger steak was great. And uh, and and then it was just great. And then my sister, my brother in law, uh, my brother in law that came to pick me up from jail in a dump truck, he came, and that sister, and um, they brought like eighteen people. It's really great. Oh, and then I also saw um, uh, a couple of friends from Hyman's, uh, Kevin. And Christina Sheely, some of the earliest people I worked with at Hyman's. I mean, that were some of the old Hyman's crew. I worked there twice, and they were part of the drinking era. She said her last memory of me was when I came to her uh, Halloween party, and that would have been, uh, I don't know, probably 2010 or 11, uh, and maybe even earlier than that. Maybe, oh gosh, maybe like 2007 or 8. Nevertheless, what an embarrassing Halloween party for me. It started off so great. It ended so badly. I just got too drunk, and I yelled at some people, and I was dressed as uh, Johnny Depp from Pirates of the Caribbean, and somebody told me that I looked like a fat version of Johnny Depp, and uh, I went to the dark side, as we used to say, and uh, okay, so, and speaking of that, my friend Eddie McCoy stopped by my house. He was in Nashville. And we were supposed to have lunch, but I ended up sleeping late. But he stopped by the house on his way back to Charlotte. And me and Eddie used to work together at Hyman's. And we used to talk about going to the dark side. That's what we would call it when we would get drunk and everything would be fine. And then suddenly it was not fine. We would call that going to the dark side. And that's when you know we would get mad at people or we would black out and do stupid things and um, not know why. We got so upset. We had a, uh, a lot of emotions, and they would come out when we were drinking, and uh, we both went to the dark side many times, and it's not a fun thing. I mean, I don't know. It is kind of fun. Uh, you just have to get into an attitude, and you have to get used to it, but um, so where I'm going, I'm going to Syracuse, New York this weekend to the Funny Bone. I haven't been there since 2015. Actually, I did one guest spot somewhere in between, probably 2016. But an actual weekend, I haven't been there since 2015, I was there featuring for Michael Winslow from Police Academy, the guy who makes all the uh, noises with his mouth. And that's a weird show. I actually found Michael Winslow to be a very nice guy, but that's a weird show that he puts on. I mean, he he just does a lot of sounds. It's a shame that he didn't get more movie roles other than, I think, Police Academy and Space Farce, I think is what it was called. And because what a unique thing that he does. But what what do you even do with that, I guess? I mean, it's like you get super typecast, but I just thought there could have been more that they could have used him for. But I liked him. He was very nice. And... uh that weekend, after that weekend, I went up to Canada and I started dating my now wife, Hannah Hogan so uh it's exciting to go back to Syracuse and uh you know, just kind of hang out. I had a lot of cigars the last time I was there. I used to go to this little gas station corner store down there. I don't know what it was, but they had a couple of cigars in a case, and it was. Warm enough to where i just go get a cigar and then set out on this little patio and uh, smoke cigars and listen to country music. It was a great time. All right, so that's the where we've been, where we're going. Look for me in Syracuse, New York this weekend. It's going to be a great time. If you don't come, you're missing out. All right, so now I want to get to these emails. I had two emails, and one is... Um, about a guy. He gave me a lot of compliments. And then he says, we've messaged back and forth a bit through Instagram and have discussed your we're having a good time methodology. And then he puts in parentheses, if you want to make it sound fancy. You said part of the cause behind this is to help people live happier lives. This could be a subject matter on your podcast, right? This spans across all of your listeners, I would assume. I don't quite know how you would go about this, to be honest, but maybe there is a way to expand on this concept and make it a segment with some of the podcast. Discuss your outlook on things and situations. Take in the small things and learn to appreciate and have gratitude. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, some things could be made deeper than they actually are, uh, and I don't think hundred uh, percent that we're having a good time is is some deep, uh, you know, has some deep meaning behind it. But uh, but it, it it's a simple thing that I'm just like, I just want the audience to know that I'm having fun, no matter what, no matter how this goes. I'm having a good time, and I want you to be having a good time because that is what my comedy is all about. I'm not trying to change lives. I'm not trying to um, teach you anything on stage. And and the only thing I'm trying to teach on uh, the podcast is how to do comedy in a way that makes you feel good and how to feel better about yourself in general, right? I mean, it's so easy to get discouraged, and it's so easy to get beat down out here because life is full of obstacles. But so much of life is just how you react to it. I mean, it's like if you lose everything, that's a bummer. But are you going to be able to pick yourself back up? Are you going to be able to handle it and go? You know what? Um, I was blessed by the things that I had, and now I don't have those anymore. Now I have to rebegin. Um, and that's what I think. To me, you know, that's what we're having a good time in a way is about because it's like I always say, and I and I hope that I will be able to react this way if it happens. You know, but you know, we've seen you know celebrities and things like that, and. For whatever reason, their careers will come to an end. Like Rick Moranis, for example. I think Rick Moranis, uh, he was in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He was in Ghostbusters. He was in uh, Doug McKenzie, I think is what it was, Bob Bob, and Doug. Um, and he had two kids, and I think his wife died. He was at the peak of his career, and his wife died, and he decided that he wanted to take care of his family. He wanted to be with his family as opposed to being a Hollywood actor, so you know he he was out of the spotlight altogether, and I don't I haven't heard of Rick Moranis in a long time, so you know I like to say that you know I've been doing comedy full time for five years now, and maybe closer to six at this point, but if suddenly it was over, suddenly it ended and I no longer was able to do comedy and I had to go back to working a quote-unquote regular job, Uh, could I be happy about it? Could I just say, hey, you know, I had a great time in the spotlight. Would I be able to tell people for the rest of my life that, hey, for five years I got to travel the country telling jokes for a living? And I like to think that I would. Now, granted, I was never that happy working a quote-unquote regular job, but if I had to do it again, could I do it now with the memories that I have of doing comedy? I don't know. I like to think that I could, but who knows? But we all, we you know, you don't have to, because one path is ended doesn't mean that you can't start a new creative path. So I don't know if that's what you're looking for in this email. But I mean, you know, when I used to, a lot of times when I would, be doing comedy, whether I was featuring or headlining, I would walk out into the audience and there would be 12 people sitting in the crowd. And I would go out and I would go, who's pumped? Right. And then one person would clap and I'd go, all right, one person. And then that would usually get a laugh from the audience. And that was kind of what we're having a good time was before there was, we're having a good time. It was like, Now I go out and I go, all right, we're having a good time, and and if it's a low turnout, I'll make a joke. I'll say, oh, this is, you know, on Wednesdays, I do a private show, and uh, I don't know how some of you got in here, but luckily for me, I haven't had those kind of audiences lately. People have actually been coming, and it's very exciting, And, um, but, you know, I mean, when I first got my agent, I got booked at a place in Peoria, Illinois, the jukebox, and this was the first official gig from my agency. Um. And I was so excited because I was like, man, things are changing. Life is turning around. These crowds are going to be popping. I mean, how could they not be? I've been on Jimmy Kimmel Live. I've been on The Tonight Show a couple of times. How could they not be popping? And then I show up, and there's six people in the audience, and two of them are people that I used to work with at Hyman's who haven't seen me in years. And I was like, oh, man but what do you do? Are you going to get down about it? Are you going to go, "Hey, I'm getting paid to do comedy. These six people came to see me." And that's what I did. I put on a great show for them. It was amazing. I had a great time. Um and now and that was really the only gig that I had like that since I've been with my new management and agents and and and, and, and um so you're going to have a lot of those. That's that's the point. And um so I got some emails from people thanking me for last week's podcast, but then I got this email, and I again, I don't know if that we're having a good time philosophy uh, thing helps at all. I don't know, but all right, so I'm going to read this podcast, or I'm going to read this email, and some people out here may relate to this. I don't know, um, but then I'm going to try my best to give an explanation to this. I think people will enjoy this. I've been listening to your podcast a bunch, and it has been so helpful. Uh, If you're still open to discussing listener topics, I know you've touched on this a few different episodes, but I would be so delighted to have a whole episode devoted to bombing and making mistakes on stage and how to not just beat the crap out of yourself and stay positive. I don't want to ruminate too much on the negative or anything, but it's just so, so helpful to me whenever I hear stories about that from people who I know are very talented. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Uh, That's paragraph one. As I'm reading that, I've realized that I've waited to minute 50 of the podcast to uh, do what you've asked and devote an entire episode to this, so… Uh, we won't be able to do that, but I will talk about it more, and I will talk about it for a bit here. The email continues. A rough show is, sometime, is something that everyone will experience, but it can be truly debilitating. I've been fortunate to have really awesome opportunities for the amount of time I've been doing stand-up. But almost every time I have a show, the next day I cannot stop screaming at myself, and am just completely destroyed by self-loathing. Even if I do well, there seems to be no end to the things that I that can be picked apart. Um, You're not alone there. I want you to think you're not alone there. It never is quite that bad for me, but you're not alone there. Uh, And I'll continue. I'd love to possibly hear about the way it feels at different stages, bombing in the beginning versus bombing as a professional and how you might process that differently. I know that the best thing to do is to keep getting up and work hard and write more and accept that this is part of the process, but it's all just so incredibly embarrassing, and sometimes I want to take a break until I've written tons of jokes that I don't hate. However, I started comedy a bit later in life than most, and I know that getting comfortable on stage is also very important, and often ideas or new tags will come from improvised moments, so I don't want to bench myself for too long and let opportunities go by. I want to make sure I'm not robbing myself of the fun that I felt when the stakes seemed a little lower. Anyway, this is a long message, and if you feel like you've covered this already, totally fine. I appreciate your insight and honesty. Well, Thank you for this email. Um, uh, bombing is not easy, uh, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna just be honest right off the bat. I mean, fortunately for me, it's not something I've experienced a ton. Right, I don't I don't bomb a lot. I do shows that don't go particularly well, and I have bombed, but I don't bomb that much, especially anymore. And I think a lot of that is because I've developed the type of style that will help me to be able to not bomb and I don't know if that makes sense but I hate I hate it I mean I I in the early days I I started comedy I started comedy at a date before the time that I say I started comedy and this is the reason why I mean honestly you could make several arguments to when I started comedy but I did my very first stand-up show in 2004 right and it went well enough, right? And I was like, wow, that was really fun. I want to do that again. But I was so incredibly nervous back then. I just could not beat the nerves. I just would get so worked up about it. And then I would I would put so much pressure on each individual show. I would, be, I would invite a bunch of people. I would invite girls that I liked because I was like, oh, this is my opportunity to really show them that I'm funny and that I can do this on a stage. And And that when it didn't go well, it was crushing because I I had so much riding on this this show. And when it didn't go the way I wanted, even if it wasn't a total bomb, uh, it would just crush me because I had too much going on. I had too many jokes memorized. I was wearing overalls. I had invited a bunch of people and it was probably my only show for that month. So it all meant so much. I put too much on it. And then when it didn't go well, I just I would just be crushed, and eventually I ended up quitting. I was like, ah, I'm doing one show a month max, and they're not going the way I want. I don't even know why I'm doing this, right? So when I came back to comedy in 2008, I went out, I did a show, and that show went incredibly well. And I thought, well, man, I got to get back into this. I want to do this again. So I started doing a little bit here and there, but I, I decided I was like, what I need. And I was sitting in a bar, the Upper Deck Tavern in Charleston, South Carolina, having a beer. And I said to my friend, I said, what we need is a place that we can do comedy every week. And I didn't know it, but I was sitting right next to the owner of the bar And he said to me, he said, here, do it here every Monday. And apparently they were doing open mic every Monday. Like you could just come and take the stage and do whatever you wanted to do. So I just took that as the opportunity to take over that open mic. There was no money involved. They ended up giving me a little bit of a bar tab, but there was no money involved. And I just took over. I just said, all right, if the open mic starts at eight, I'll be here at eight. I'll be hosting it. And that's what I did for like the next year. I hosted an open mic every week at the Upper Deck Tavern in Charleston. Now, the Upper Deck Tavern was exactly what it sounds like. I mean, the the door to the bathroom wouldn't lock. There There was a toilet and a urinal, no stall. The door wouldn't lock. So there was no pooping in there. I mean, you could do it. I I know a couple people that did, but it really was not the place. The entire bar smelled like urine unless they were burning incense in there. And then it smelled like incense and urine. And it was full of hipsters and full of people that hated comedy. And it was the perfect place because we loved it. We hung out there anyway. So we would stand up in our little corner of the corner of the room And we had a little section where if we had enough people in there, we would get a bit of an audience. Otherwise, it was just loud people talking that didn't care about comedy. And on that rare occasion, everybody in there would be paying attention. And then it would make me extremely nervous because I got so used to people not listening to me. That I was nervous when they actually were. But that repetition, being able to get up on stage every week like that, helped me to get better at comedy. That's why someone that lives in New York, LA, Chicago, cities like that, Atlanta, they can get up on stage multiple times a night, every night, and they get over a lot of things. But the reason that I say this about this particular open mic is because we had a friendship core within this open mic. And a lot of us did improv together at Theater 99, and then we would come over and do stand-up together. So we already had a bit of a friendship core going on so that when we were doing stand-up together, it didn't matter if our jokes were bombing because we were in it together. We were a team and we would bomb for each other and then we would help each other work on our jokes. But mainly we were just spending time getting comfortable on stage. I think oftentimes, especially if you're coming into comedy and you're older, you think, well, I'm, I'm limited on time. I gotta, I gotta get busy with this. I gotta make this start happening right away. And I don't think it's about your age so much as it is about your ability to hang. I think sometimes when people get into comedy when they're older, they have a wife, they have a family, and they're not able to just spend hours sitting in an open mic room. And I think that what helped me so much, I mean, honestly, in the early days, I think drinking uh, was a help and a hindrance. It was a hindrance to my creative process and to being able to write and remember jokes. But it was a help in the bonding process uh, with the other comics. Um, So I think that I don't think age matters. I think it's being able to spend the time that you need to spend in there. So you, I immersed myself in this comedy world. Comedy became my identity. I had a full-time job. I didn't care about making money with comedy. I was actually making quite a bit of money with my job, and especially for a single guy in my 20s with no college degree. I was like, I was, I was banking it. And so – Comedy became my life. I, I just thought about comedy all the time. I, I carried a notebook with me around uh, my pesticide selling job and I was just writing things down all the time. And I would, you know, I would go have coffee and, and, and lunch on the clock, on, you know, on the while I was working and I would just be writing. I, I had a friend, I didn't even own a computer back then. I had a friend that would type up some of my jokes for me and then I would just sit with that paper and I would edit it. I would, cross things out and I would write new things in and uh, I was right I wrote the letters of the alphabet joke during that time off the making that fudge album I I wrote it by you know I would just sit down and I would read it over and over again and I would say it to myself and new ideas would come to me and so this joke uh, came alive as as so many others came alive you know through just writing over and over again and, and saying it to myself in the car I'd be on the road for hours at a time and I would just I would just say my jokes out loud and uh, and then I would go and I would do them for my friends at these open mics and then I would do them at our local theater. I would mostly only perform in rooms that I was comfortable with. And as much as I think it is important to get out of your comfort zone, because it is, but I think in those early stages, if bombing is really hard on you, then just perform in places that make you comfortable and just do that for a while. Just perform in places that make you comfortable until you actually get comfortable performing. I think it's so important because, you know, if, if, if bombing is so hard on you, you're going to end up quitting. Because that's what happened to me. I was like, this is not worth it. I've put too much pressure on myself. I've put my whole social life on. Uh, on the shoulders of this comedy career, and that if this comedy doesn't work out, then nothing is going to work out, and I'm worthless. You know, and that that is the kind of pressure you can put on yourself. And I think that you have to, you know, put yourself in rooms that make you comfortable. And also, when you're doing an open mic, if they say you have five minutes, you don't have to do five minutes. Do two or three minutes. Just do what you think is funny, go do it, get off, and then record it, watch it, get better. Use that Use that uh, hate for bombing as fuel for making yourself better. I used to, in Charleston, I would go to a poetry open mic, and I asked the guy, I said, hey, can I do comedy? And he said to me on the first day, he goes, he said, comedy doesn't go well here. He said, I'll let you do it, but it doesn't go well here. And then I had a really great set and the audience really liked me. And then the next time he brought me up, he said what he told me on into the microphone. He said, When this guy came, I, I told him that comedy doesn't go well here and he did really well and I'm happy to have him back. And the reason that is, is because I read the room. But also this was a comfortable room for me because this was a, a, a bunch of creative people in a room and that's Uh, They weren't loud. They weren't drunk. They were a bunch of creative people, and I got in to be able to go in there and softly tell them my stories, and they really enjoyed them. So it's like finding rooms that make you comfortable. Now, you can't stay in this place forever. You can't stay in this ultimate comfort zone because you're never going to get better. You're going to have to start drifting out of there. But for a while, I mean, it took me a really long time to get comedy figured out. I mean, some people will see older videos. I don't know what video I showed to someone the other day, or maybe it was just a picture. Yeah, it was the picture that I had. And this would have been probably 2008. I was wearing cargo shorts and flip-flops on stage and had the old hairstyle that never really did anything for me. And, uh, surprisingly women would date me. And, uh, that just shows how nice women are. But I, um, they said – they looked at that picture and they said, wow, this gives me a lot of hope. And it should give you a lot of hope because I've always been a very funny person. Like I, arguably prior to starting comedy, I was funnier uh, in everyday life. But once I started doing comedy, I'm like, okay, I make enough people laugh. I don't need to walk around every day making everybody laugh anymore. But I got uh, – into, you know, uh, this comfortable place. So I'm saying it, it should give you comfort to know where I came from, knowing that you can also do that because I did not start off great in comedy. I did not come out of the gate, like boom. Now, a lot of times I would still be the best in the room because I understood how to tell a joke. I used to tell street jokes with my friends all the time. So I learned how to tell a joke. So, so much of it is about delivery as we talked about last week. I mean, it's like delivery is, 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 is what it is. I mean, I, I know some people that are really great writers that don't tell jokes that well and it's a hindrance to them and it, and it's like, you can't tell someone how to tell a joke, but I do think that if you don't know, if you're not good at delivery, you can learn it, but I don't think someone can necessarily just say, oh, you got to tell that joke better. And then you go, oh, that's right. I do have to tell that better. They have to learn it on their own, and I think part of what will make bombing easier is that if you're more likable and – I, and I don't uh, – this is not coming from my knowledge of what you're doing. I'm just talking about in general. Uh, becoming more likable on stage, being a, a, a person that the audience is like, oh, I like this person. And I also think being cleaner. Now, I know if you're not a clean comic and you listen to me, you're probably annoyed every time I say that. But the reason I say it is because if you're up on stage, you're cussing a lot, you're being very sexual, you're making a lot of social justice platitudes, then you have so much more riding on your jokes working Um, because if you if you bomb and you're very dirty then not only have you bombed but you also probably grossed out the audience but if you're a clean comic and you bomb people are likely just to be like that person's cheesy they were cheesy but they don't dislike you as a person so I think that you know, in the early stages, there's a comic, and I and I don't know if you know who this is. She's very funny. Her name's Taylor Tomlinson, and uh, I know that she's a bit dirtier of a comic now, but started off as a clean comic. And I really like even her dirty jokes because I think if you're being a clean comic, you have to learn how to write a joke because you can't rely on shock words. And I think that what would make what what will potentially make her such a dangerous comic is she has started clean, so she knows how to write a joke and now she's able to add in the shock words and so it's like a double whammy you know and uh and i if you haven't listened to her, I would encourage you to listen to her and just uh you know just you know hear some of her joke writing and and how she really dissects a joke. I think she's very funny. And um, and I just think that, yeah, I mean, you you can't sideline yourself. Now, it's okay to take a break. I mean, I quit comedy in 2005, and I didn't do it again until 2000, either late 2007 or early 2008. So I would say I took about three years off of comedy. And... I came back much better. Now granted I mean that would have you know that would have put me coming back I don't know uh, at around 26. So you know I mean not later in life but I didn't I I mean it, there's another case to be made for me starting comedy in 2012 when I quit drinking because that's when I got serious about it. And then there's another argument to be made for me starting comedy in 2014 when I actually started working the road. Um, so um, I, I've been, you know, five years full time, and it's just—I mean—doing comedy all the time is is what you have to do. But 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 you also have to take care of yourself. You can't. You know, you can't be out there bombing all the time and expect to maintain confidence. So, you know, get out there, go do a mic once a week. Just do one a week and, and, and focus on getting those jokes to a place that make you feel good about it. But don't put a lot of pressure on it. Don't invite people you know. Don't think that each set has to be the end of the world because it doesn't. Each set is not... The determining factor for how well your life is going to go. It's just a comedy set and just remember it as that. It's just a comedy set and you're going to be fine. But figure out what's not working. Why are you bombing? And as far as even when the set goes well, you still picking yourself apart. Well, that's you got to take it easy on yourself. I mean, I am I come off the stage and I know how well that set went the moment I come off. And I'm oftentimes too hard on myself. But I also will let myself enjoy. I will come off and I'll I'll say to myself, that was a good set. That was a hot set. And But it takes a while. I mean, and this is what I'll say. This is the last thing I'll say and then I'm going to end it. Um, I... Remember the moment that I started to enjoy doing comedy on stage. Now, I know I've talked about this before, but I, after hosting the Upper Deck open mic, I ended up hosting another open mic at Big Gun Burger in Charleston. Now, that place is still there. Upper Deck's gone. Big Gun's still there. And that place really helped me get comfortable on stage. But I was on stage at the music hall, the Charleston music hall. This place seats 900 people. And I had, I, they, I did a few shows there. I had some success. And one show was my least successful. I had 30 people show up. Now, I don't know if you know what 30 people looks like in a 900-seat theater, but it is sad. And I had promoted it. I had someone come from out of town. I mean, it was a big deal. I was like, all right, we're doing it. And then I had, uh, uh, I had a girl show up that I was interested in dating. And so it was very embarrassing to me, but I'm like, I have to go out here and be this host. I have to be the host. And I was just standing out there and I was like, I didn't want to just do straight jokes because I was like, oh, only 30 people are out here. So I just started riffing a bit and I looked out and I saw people laughing and the girl I was interested in dating was also laughing. And I was like, you know what? This is fun. I'm having fun up on stage doing comedy prior to that it was like I write these jokes I memorize these jokes I go out there and I tell them if at the end of the night those jokes were good I feel good if the end of the night they weren't good then I don't feel good I don't feel uh, I don't feel worth it as a person to even go and hang out with my friends I if the show went well I was like all right let's go hang let's go drink let's go party if the show was a bomb I was like I don't know why would I even hang out who wants to talk to me And I imagine that's how you're feeling. But you got to not put that pressure on yourself. You got to recognize when you've done well. And you may not be the best person on the show yet. Because, you know, you're new. But you may, you know, end up being the best person on the show. But you just got to put in the time. You got to not rush it. It's all a slow process. It's all a learning process. If you start learning a foreign language, you're not going to be fluent the next day. It's going to take some time, and people are still going to laugh at your accent once in a while. But you got to put in the work. You got to learn. You got to, you know, they said the best way to learn a foreign language is to immerse yourself in that culture. If you want to learn French, move to France for a while. So if you want to learn comedy, get in there. Immerse yourself in it. Be in it. Watch other stand-ups. Watch the classics. Don't watch this new stuff. There's some, there, there is some new good stuff, but I, I like to go back to the classics myself. But uh, I hope this has been a great and informative podcast for you. This weekend, I'll be in Syracuse, New York. Next weekend, I'll be in Seattle, Washington. Wednesday, January the 29th, I'll be at Zaney's in Nashville. Come see the show. I got some exciting people coming. Uh, thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. I hope this has been fun. We're having a good time.